0: Well, good morning, everybody. We're gonna get started. If you wanna go grab a donut, grab some coffee, some tea, uh, make your way back to your seats. We'll we'll begin. right we'll go ahead and open up with a word of prayer heavenly father we thank you for the bible we thank you for the opportunity we have as your people as the church to gather together to study the bible i pray that you would show us the glories of christ we pray in his name amen Amen. how are you guys doing with your bible reading Good. good good are you kind of building some rhythms in that's kind of the subtle secondary aspect of this we don't I don't want to just teach you. I want you to read the Bible yourself and get into it. Um, what are you reading? Does anyone want to share an insight from your reading, either this morning or maybe this week that you've been doing? Something that maybe struck you that hadn't struck you before or convicted you of sin or showed you of Jesus in some unique way? Any particular passage come to mind? Acts 7. Acts 7. What about Acts 7. Because mm. he went through the whole uh, history of Israel and then preached it to the so-called believers, uh, the non-believers. But mm-hmm. it was amazing. It was like eat this blood. Oh, that's cool. Did you, I don't know if you heard her. She said that she was reading Acts 7 and n- making note of uh, Stephen's sermon that he preached right before he died. And S- Stephen, interestingly enough, ...was a deacon. He was not an elder. He was not a a teaching elder. And yet he knew the scriptures so well... ...that he was able to lay out this beautiful... ...we would call it a redemptive historical sermon. Essentially, it goes through all of the history of the ancient people of Israel... ...ties it into Christ and says, here he is. See Jesus. Now... Uh, It did not go well for him because it it was a great sermon, but he died anyway. So that's sort of a a little lesson for us as preachers and teachers that it's not always about feedback. You know, we're happy to receive the good feedback, but it's more important to preach a good sermon. So he did. Anybody else? Thoughts from your Bible reading? Things that encouraged you this week or something that stood out for you, struck you? Dave. but Jesus' answer about how can David's son be called David's Lord, how can the Christ be called David's Lord, Jesus was showing them that he being with them is their God and their neighbor, like God became their neighbor when he became flesh, and so like Mm. you're supposed to love God and your neighbor, well, God became their neighbor and they hated him, you know? Wow, yeah. That's cool. Anybody else kind of thoughts from your Bible reading this week? Well, it's okay. But I want to encourage you uh, to, again, be reading your Bible. If if you get off track, it's okay. Uh, Don't let getting off track stop you from getting back on track. It's not a legalistic exercise. It's about allowing God to speak to you through his word, by his spirit, as you read. Um, to devour it, to listen to it. Whenever I'm reading the Bible, I try to identify a few things. If this helps you, if you get kind of confused by what you're reading sometimes, uh, think about what does this passage tell you about God, who God is, characteristics about God, the holiness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Uh, What does it tell you about you, about human beings, about your own sins and your own failures and the ways that you fall short of the glory of God. And then think about, are there any hints at Jesus Christ? Either very directly about Jesus Christ and his grace and the gospel or things that might hint at God's great plan of salvation. And think about those things. I think you'll be encouraged. Uh, Kip and Elizabeth, I'm going to ask you to take that book, sign it and pass it down and we'll make our way that little attendance sheet uh, thank you for doing that. It helps the ladies. They actually keep records and they turn them in to somebody. I don't know where it goes, but uh, they're turning them in. So some, there's a, somewhere there's a giant NSA database of your attendance in Sunday school. And uh, it will, it will help, help them. So do that and we'll pass it around. All right. Hey, we're picking up in the book of Ruth. Last week we did the first two chapters of Ruth. Does anyone remember any of the themes that we talked about in the book of Ruth? What about Ruth chapter 1? Who are some of the main characters in that chapter? Ruth, the two daughters. Ruth, the two daughters. What are the two daughters' names? Or- oh, and actually Naomi and the two daughters. Yep, Naomi. Daughters-in-law. What were their names? Orpah and Ruth. Okay. Uh, Does anyone want to do a deep dive and remember the name of uh, Naomi's husband who died? Elimelech. Elimelech. Now, why might his name be important or perhaps ironic in the story? Right? It means Eli, my god, is Melech, which is king. So my god is king. Why might that be ironic given where the story begins? Right, he took off. He's in Moab. He's not in the promised land. He leaves Bethlehem to go in the time of a famine. Now, why might that be ironic? What's Bethlehem mean? House of bread. House of bread. So this man who says, my God is king, leaves the house of bread to go to Moab to look for food there. So it's it's very ironic. The narrator is telling a, a beautiful story. Now, uh, what about... Uh, Somebody tell me about the speech. Is there a famous speech in Chapter 1? Yes. Does anyone know the speech? I'm, not, I'm kind of putting you on the spot. I don't know if I could do it by memory. But does anyone know the speech? Can anyone say the speech? Yeah, from, from Chapter 1. Yeah, whither thou goest. Uh, I, I kind of know it in King James-ish language. Whither thou goest, I will go. And uh, where you? I think she says lodge. Yeah. Yes. And your people people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Far be it uh, from me that anything but death shall separate me from you. So this uh, beautiful picture of God's faithfulness expressed through uh, Ruth, whose full name in the story until the last chapter, we'll get to it, Is Ruth the Moabite? Over and over again, Ruth is an outsider. Ruth doesn't belong. She's not part of this covenant community. But is she part of the covenant community? Yes. Because how do you get to be part of the covenant community? Through Jesus, by grace, through faith. So uh, a lot of times people will read the Old Testament and they go, well... That's one story about these Israelite people and the Jewish people. And the Old Testament is all about the Jews. And then there's a sort of a lane shift here as we get to the New Testament. And now it's about the Gentiles and now it's about everybody. And these guys were saved one way and then the New Testament people are saved another way. That's not true. It's always been by grace, through faith. In Jesus. Now, back then in the Old Testament, they didn't know Jesus' name, but they were waiting for him, and they were trusting in him. And they're saying, this Messiah is going to come, and he's going to forgive us, and he's going to deliver us. And then, when he shows up, everyone says, he's here. This is the one we've been waiting for all along. Now, what about chapter 2? Who are some of the main characters in chapter 2? Boaz. Boaz. Okay, what's significant about Boaz? Boaz. What's his title or kind of job description in that chapter? The goale, the, the kinsman redeemer. What what was kind of their job? Does anyone remember that? We talked a little bit about that. What did they do? Yes, they kind of provided protection for them. They provided material uh, substance for them, assistance for them. Um now, what did we say? We said three things about how Boaz responded to Ruth, this foreign uh, woman. And they all started with the same letter. <laughs> the, the, uh, the Redeemer does what? Sees the foreigner, sees the foreign person. He, he goes up and he, go, he sees all these gleaners who are essentially like, uh, you know, really like kind of farm workers or kind of day laborers. And he goes, hey, I've never seen you before. Who's this? You know what? Tell me about her, right? Remarkable. Unbelievable. Uh, what else? He sees the foreigner. He saves the foreigner. How did he save her? You remember, Cindy? Well, he provides to Spain. Um, He saves her from the other people, from the dangers that she might face. Yeah, he says, hey, stay close to my young men. Don't go out on your own because it's a dangerous place for somebody who doesn't have at least at this point in the story, a kinsman redeemer. Because one of the main jobs of the kinsman redeemer was essentially to protect you if you were vulnerable from somebody who might do you harm. So he says, I'm going to save you from harm. Now, we already we said the third one is he, what, the foreigner? Sustains. Sustains. How did Boaz sustain Ruth? Made sure, Made sure she had food. Just enough food to get by? One meal? No. No. Huge amounts of, of food. We read that they ate until they were satisfied. Again, very rare in the ancient world. Very poor culture, subsistence living. You kind of got your food for the day. You ate the food for the day. And you usually were not satisfied. You just kind of ate whatever you had. So, all right. right, we're Now we're going to get to week 10, Ruth, part two. A new script and a new name. All right, let's begin. If your life was made into a movie, what kind of movie would it be? Action Action movie? Would it be, perhaps, a buddy comedy? Would it be a sassy yet poignant ensemble piece set in a rural Louisiana beauty salon? Anyone? No? Okay. Who would play you in the movie version of your life? Any, would it be a traditional leading man like Matt Damon, George Clooney, or Brad Pitt? Would it be a traditional leading lady like Julia Roberts or Sandra Bullock? Would it be a character actor like Sherman Hemsley from the Jeffersons or Ann B. Davis from the Brady Bunch? Two of my favorites. What about God? Would God a supporting actor in your story should he be why or why not he's never, the supporting actor. he's never the supporting actor who is he in the in the story the he's the lead he's the main actor we are supporting actors in his story he's also the director, he's also the director. and uh, he's the producer Uh, The Bible is his script. Theologians are his dramaturgs. You can go very deep with this. I read a whole book about it. But it's all part of it. All right, this morning we're going to look at uh, part two of one of the Bible's great love stories, the book of Ruth. Like any good story, there's a script. Naomi writes the first draft. Boaz does some major rewrites. And then leaves us with a to-be-continued where where we expect to find the end. How will the story end? Will Ruth find her redeemer? Will Naomi find her redeemer? Will Boaz be the redeemer? And if so, who will redeem him? Do we have a, a role to play in this story? And if so... How do we know our lines if we don't even know what character that we're supposed to play? All right, let's go to the text to answer some of these questions. Quick recap. Uh, the book of Ruth begins in Moab. There we meet Elimelech and his family, his wife Naomi, his sons Malon and Kilion, and his daughters Ruth and Orpa. Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, was in Moab because he had abandoned Bethlehem, the house of bread. During a severe famine, things didn't work out so well for Elimelech as he died in verse 3 of chapter 1. His sons lived another 10 years only to die in verse 5. Widowed and alone, having no one to provide for her in Moab, Naomi decided to go back to Bethlehem. Ruth and Orpa, her daughters-in-law, decided to go with her. Oprah, however, decided to settle in the Chicago area and become the world's (laughs) most famous talk show host and cereal dieter. But that was several centuries later and is irrelevant to the story at hand. Now, you would think that Naomi would appreciate the company for a long walk back home, but she told her two daughters-in-law to go back home to Moab and so they could find some nice Moabite husbands and settle down, have a family, Orpah obliged, but Ruth refused, giving a rousing speech that was so moving that Naomi stopped talking to her. Naomi was so defeated, having lost her husband and her two boys, that she demanded to be called Mara, which means bitter, and not Naomi, which means pleasant. Ruth, on the other hand, didn't give up hope. She went out to glean the fields where she met Boaz. Boaz. Boaz was a worthy man, uh, kind, generous to Ruth in ways that de- defied and went against many social norms. Mm-hmm. Recognizing that ultimately Ruth was seeking to be redeemed by the Lord, Boaz saw this foreign woman, saved her, and then sustained her. As her redeemer, he invited her to his feast where she ate until she was satisfied. Now, Acts act 2 ends with these words. Somebody read Ruth 2, verse 23. Now, she had been partially redeemed, but she was still living with her mother-in-law. Will she find a husband? Will, will she find the consummate redeemer that she's been looking for? On to Act 3. As Act 3 begins, Naomi takes the lead. After a year without a marriage proposal, a mom has to do what a mom has to do. Naomi begins to ponder a script for Ruth to follow. A foolproof plan to win the heart of Boaz or at least secure his hand in marriage. Her plan Let's just say something that I hope that my mom, sitting in the front row, would never come up with. Now, it's hard to get this in English, but if you read this in Hebrew, almost everything that she says has a double meaning in verse 4. Naomi tells Ruth to uncover Boaz's feet, which is a Hebrew word that often means a little bit more than the feet. She tells Ruth to lie down, something that can result in a relaxing nap, or a baby nine months later. The tension builds as we see whether Ruth will follow this potentially R-rated script. If she does follow Naomi's script, will Boaz go along with it? Will this worthy man reverse course, abandoning God's ways as as God's people did during the time of the Judges? Are we in store for another unhappy ending? Well, before the encounter at the threshing floor, the narrator sets the scene. At the beginning of the story, we read that Boaz ate and drank until his heart was merry. And then he went, down to, lie, to, went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You went to college, maybe you were in a fraternity or a sorority, and you knew someone who had a little bit too much to drink, and they ate and drank until their heart was merry, and then they fell asleep in some strange places all over the place. But, uh, you know, never beside a huge thing of grain, but you never know. Now, that's not what's going on here. Remember who Boaz is. Boaz was a worthy man. He's a redeemer. So how do we explain the fact that he ate and drank until his heart was merry and then seemingly passed out uh, next to this huge pile of grain? Well, in those days, they would have big celebrations to celebrate the wheat harvest. And when the celebration ended, they would all go outside and sleep next to these huge piles of grain in order to guard them from thieves. Remember, again, that Naomi knew where he would be. So he didn't just drink until he passed out in some random field somewhere. He went there on purpose in order to guard the grain. Remember? Okay. Now, initially, Ruth appeared to be going along with Naomi's script. She went down to where Boaz was sleeping, uncovered his feet, lay down, Boaz was apparently a deep sleeper, but around midnight, something woke him up, and the text tells us, behold, a woman lay at his feet. And then, I think, then he said what I think most of us would say, we found a strange woman sleeping at our foot, besides, behold, he said, who are you? What will Ruth say? This is the moment of truth. She changes the script. She was supposed to say, I'm Ruth. Tell me what you want me to do. But instead, she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are redeemer. Now, what is she doing? What, is that, what does that mean? She's proposing marriage to him. In the ancient world, if you spread the edge of your garment over someone, that was equivalent to giving them An engagement ring. In spite of every social norm that said this is not okay to do. Women were not allowed to propose marriage to men. Just unthinkable. She stepped out in faith and asked for his hand in marriage. Did Ruth realize that women weren't supposed to propose to men? Again, even in our day, it's not normally how proposals work. Ruth knew exactly what she was doing. She risked rejection and humiliation because she had faith. She believed that ultimately God would redeem her with or without Boaz. Well, she had faith that God had already spread the wings of his garment over her. And therefore, there was nothing that could ever separate her from God's love. In the story, we see that human rejection is much less scary when we know that we've already been accepted by God. Now, it's time for Boaz to write the final act. How will he respond to Ruth's midnight proposal? Will he sweep Ruth off of of her feet as the two of them ride off into the sunset, or in this case, the sunrise? Boaz says yes. Yes. Somebody read Ruth 3, verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Mm, A worthy woman. What melts his heart is the recognition that Ruth's proposal is an act of covenant faithfulness to Naomi, her mother-in-law. The selfish choice for Ruth would be to pursue a much younger man. A younger man would be much more likely to propose. A younger man would be more likely to give Ruth children. Ruth was a hardworking, outdoorsy person, a field worker. Younger men need fewer naps in the field. Like old Boaz did. But pursuing a younger man would likely mean abandoning Naomi. As we'll see in Act 4, it's hard enough to find a man to redeem a widow like Ruth, but if Naomi comes along as part of the package, well, it's very, very unlikely to find someone who would redeem her, this older woman. Boaz, on the other hand, had the financial resources to provide for both Ruth. And Naomi, because Boaz was an older, wiser, worthy man of the city, he would be much more likely to fulfill the role of kinsman-redeemer for both women, buying Naomi's land, providing food and shelter for both women for the rest of their lives. Boaz, after accepting this proposal in principle, reveals a potential complication. Somebody read verse 12. Dun-dun-dun, right? They're building the suspense. He then gives Ruth six measures of barley and she returns home to Naomi and reports all that happened at the threshing floor. In the final verse we read, verse 18, somebody. Mm, So we're left with a little uh, ellipses where we almost expect a a period. Now, did you notice anything strange about Boaz's script that he wrote? The answer is it's incomplete. We expect a period. You get a to be continued. Notice the foreshadowing at the end of the chapter. Boaz gives Ruth six measures of barley Instead of one shy of the number seven, the number that normally represents completeness in the Bible. As readers, we're expecting a seventh measure. A redeemer who will settle the matter that Boaz left unsettled. Okay, characters from Act 3. Naomi, we have some of her positives. Uh, She's now thinking of Ruth as part of the family. Whereas in Act 1, Naomi wanted Ruth to return to Moab and marry a Moabite husband, she now wants Ruth to pursue Boaz, a worthy man of Bethlehem. But there are some negatives here as well. She's still trying to do uh, God's will in a very worldly way. Her advice to Ruth is morally ambiguous at best, at best. Act 3 invites us to contrast Naomi the Israelite who does the Mo- does things the Moabite way with Ruth the Moabite who does things the Israelite way. How about Boaz? His worthiness is now displayed in his upstanding moral character. He's not only an honorable man while people are watching, but also when they're not watching. He didn't try to sleep with Ruth at the threshing floor and he agreed to redeem both Ruth and Naomi. Boaz's speech again highlights who God is and how God works. God isn't uh, isn't how Naomi envisions him, hard, harsh, someone who makes us bitter. He's a God who welcomes strangers and blesses outcasts. Throughout the story, there is a redeemer who is closer than Boaz. Boaz is the means through which the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, provides for Naomi. What about Ruth? Well, Ruth continues to demonstrate what it means to be a worthy woman, which is the same phrase which is used to describe Boaz. He's described as a worthy man of Israel. In this chapter, she demonstrates what it means to be a Proverbs 31 woman. Now, notice, did you know, that in the Hebrew order of the books, the book of Ruth comes right after Proverbs 31. In many cases, in many, uh, many interpreters believed that the ancient Israelites would have read this story, the story of Ruth, with the story of the Proverbs 31 woman ringing in their ears. The Proverbs 31 woman seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. Remember that Ruth willingly went out to glean in the fields when Naomi stayed home. The Proverbs 31 woman dresses herself with strength. Remember that chapter 2, Ruth carried home 50 pounds of grain. And here at the end of chapter 3, she's going to carry home 80 pounds of barley. Six measures. In The Proverbs 31 woman has a husband who's known at the gates. Boaz was known in the gates, and so was Ruth. Proverbs 31 tells us that charm is deceitful and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Remember again, the one thing that we don't know about Ruth is what she looked like. In spite of what the Renaissance painters tended to de- depict... We don't know whether or not she was a physically attractive woman. Again, the Bible isn't shy about telling us when someone is not physically attractive, but we don't know what Ruth looked like. We know she was beautiful because, like the Proverbs 31 woman, which comes right before her, she uh, emanated and radiated the love of God. Sometimes Christian women look at the Proverbs 31 woman and see this Impossible standard. But Ruth shows us the key that unlocks the secret of how this mysterious biblical superwoman became a biblical superwoman. Ruth was a Proverbs 31 woman because the Holy Spirit was working in her and through her, transforming her into the worthy woman who Boaz loved. None of us can aspire to Ruth's standard of worthiness on our own, nor are we counted worthy in God's sight because of our good works. We're counted worthy because God has called us out of the Moabs of our unbelief, bringing us near by the blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for us. Some theological themes from Act 3. In God's script... We are supporting actors and not the other way around. So often we're tempted to make God a supporting actor in our story. We act as if God exists to help us accomplish our goals and find our own happiness. We ask him for help, but only to further our own goals and our own agendas. Ruth acknowledged that she was a supporting actor in God's drama. She did what seemed Humanly impossible, she proposed to a rich landowner, boldly claiming God's grace for herself and for Naomi. By rewriting Naomi's script to reflect God's script, Ruth got the story back on track. No longer destined to die alone, a stranger in a strange land, to God's people and God's promises, by God's grace, through faith, she received salvation. Boaz also recognized that he was a supporting actor in God's story. He provided temporary redemption for Ruth, a very good thing. But Boaz realized that he could not provide the ultimate consummate redemption that Ruth and Naomi needed. He he couldn't provide the consummate redemption that he himself needed. When we realize that we're supporting characters in the greatest love story ever told, We have the joy and peace of knowing that God writes a better story than we could ever write for ourselves. A better ending than any human being could ever conceive. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. All right, act four. How will the story end? In the first scene of the final act, Boaz meets the nearer redeemer, a man that the text calls friend. Now, it's actually a lot funnier in Hebrew because his name is Poloni Almoni, which means exactly what it sounds like it means. Nothing. It's like flimflam or hodgepodge. It's roughly the equivalent. I think really the best English equivalent is... Mr. So-and-so, okay, that's his name. The nearer redeemer has no name. That'll be very important. So at first, Mr. So-and-so was excited about this transaction because he would be buying a piece of land from a widow with no heirs. All so-and-so has to do is take care of Naomi for a few years. She dies. He keeps the land. The Monopoly Man would definitely approve of this transaction. But then, in a move worthy of the great barrister Ben Matlock, Boaz reveals a twist. Verse 5. Somebody read it. Hmm. In now This is not a welcome bit of information for Mr. So-and-so because he now realizes what this redemption will cost him. He will be paying Naomi for the field. He'll be taking care of Naomi for the rest of her life, taking care of Ruth for the rest of her life, taking care of Ruth's children for the rest of their lives. And in the end, he doesn't get to keep the field he bought because that will go to Ruth's children ...as their inheritance. Sound like a good deal? Hmm. Might have a few Mr. and Mrs. So-and-Sos in the crowd. So if this is such a bad deal, why did Boaz agree to redeem Ruth? Well, the answer is he wasn't motivated by financial gain, but by grace. In verse 10, Boaz said that he's done this to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. See, when Naomi and her family went to Moab, they lost their name in Israel. Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion all died without any heirs, separated from God, and without an inheritance. By redeeming Ruth and Naomi, Boaz is giving them their name back. By adopting this family, Boaz is restoring the honor that they lost through their sin. Elimelech's name means my God is king, but he and his two sons died in rebellion against that king. But through Boaz's grace, God will once again be the king of Elimelech's family. So Boaz and Mr. So-and-so exchanged shoes, as was the custom in those days... The elders of the city uh, uh, sign off as witnesses, and the deal is done. Our story concludes with a wedding. Boaz and Ruth get married and have a son named Obed. Naomi now has a grandson, a boy, in the place of the two boys, same word used in both places, who died in chapter 1. The narrator concludes by revealing that Obed grew up to become the grandfather of King David. Theological themes from Act chapter 4. The first one is new names. When uh, When we become supporting characters in God's great love story, he gives us new names, new identities. Just as newborn infants receive new names from their parents... God gives us new names when we're born again from above. Earlier, we read that Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi to perpetuate the name of the dead in their inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. Earlier, Ruth's name was Widow, But now, in verse 10, her name becomes wife. Earlier, Ruth's name was barren. In verse 13, her name becomes mother. Whereas before, Ruth was known as a foreigner. In verse 11, this Moabite woman is mentioned in the same breath as Rachel and Leah, two of the great matriarchs of the history of the nation of Israel. By faith, Ruth became part of God's covenant people, a daughter in covenant relationship with God. There's more. Ruth also has a new identity as part of the family line of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1, verse 5, Ruth is identified by name in, in Jesus' genealogy. There's more. Ruth's name in the book of Ruth is repeatedly Ruth the Moabite, But the last time her name is mentioned, in verse 13, she's simply Ruth. In Matthew 1, verse 5, she's simply Ruth. By grace, through faith, God has given her a new name. Ruth the Moabite has become Ruth, the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? What about Naomi? Does Naomi have a new name? Well, let's look. Whereas before, Naomi had literally tried to change her own name from pleasant to bitter. Now, by God's grace, she has a new name too. She was barren, having lost her two uh, young boys in chapter 1. But now God has given her a new young boy. Again, same Hebrew word, who she holds on her lap like a son. Ruth is also gained... I, I mistyped that. Naomi has also gained Ruth, who the women of the town said was better than seven sons. Like Ruth, the scope of Naomi's redemption is so much bigger than the joy of a new grandson. Like he'd done with Ruth, God gave Naomi future hope. In verse 14, the women of the town, in their joy over the birth of Obed, say something very remarkable Somebody read verse 14. And the Lord said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned to you, Israel. Hmm. Do you know that this is the only place in the Bible outside of the birth of Jesus Christ where a baby is referred to as a Redeemer? The women then said that the baby would be to her a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. The grace of God gave Naomi an everlasting name, her name which apart from God's grace was destined to be forgotten like the names of her family members. And so many of the other unfaithful Israelites during the period of the judges now resides in the palaces of kings. She's part of the royal line of David. What about Boaz? Well, by redeeming Ruth and Naomi and acting as God's means of spreading uh, his wing over these two widows, the elders of the city blessed Boaz's name. They prayed that his family name would be honored as the name of the family name of Perez, one of the great men of Israel's history. What else? As with Ruth and Naomi, there's a future dimension to Boaz's name. Because Boaz showed grace to Ruth and Naomi, God gave Boaz an everlasting name. Every time this story is told, centuries and centuries later, his name is read aloud and he is remembered as an instrument of God's saving grace. Now, that's especially poignant when you uh, contrast Boaz's everlasting name with the name of Mr. So-and-so, the other Redeemer, we very pointedly don't know his name. He's Poloni Almoni. His selfishness and his unwillingness to, to redeem uh, Ruth and Naomi dies with him. He is forever unnamed. All right, conclusion. So is this just about God redeeming a people in preparation for King David? What do you think? No? No? Anybody? I think it's kind of yes and no. The time of David was, one of the, was a time of great unprecedented success, and yet God's grace didn't reach its pinnacle with David. And David himself knew this. In Psalm 110, David wrote of the Messiah to come, one who would be both his son and his Lord. See, what David is saying is, I'm going to have a descendant who is going to be Lord over me. I'm not the deliverer. There's one to come. Long after David died, the prophet Isaiah looked forward to a day when God's people would be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord would give. In the book of Ruth, God was preparing for the coming of David, but he was also preparing for the son of David. Jesus Christ. David, Jesus would fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, giving God's people a new name, making God's outcast people his bride, just as Boaz made Ruth the Moabite his bride. Before Jesus came, our name was forsaken. But Revelation 2 verse 17 tells us that the Holy Spirit has given his people a white stone ...with a new name. We're Christians. We literally receive the name of Christ... ...when we come to him in faith. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection... ...all who receive him with the faith of Ruth, Boaz... ...and even the faltering faith of Naomi... ...will be called Christ's brothers and sisters... ...sons and daughters... Of our heavenly father. Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi with money, but Christ redeemed us with his blood. He died on the cross to save all who will repent and believe in him. Now that just leaves one question, and it's a personal question What's your name? If you have been redeemed by the free grace of Jesus, you're now no longer a stranger, no longer an orphan, no longer an outsider. You're part of a family, God's family. You have an everlasting name and a new uh, family identity because Jesus died on the cross to redeem you. Isn't that cool? That's the story of Ruth. Any questions? Observations? It's a great story, isn't it? One of my favorite books in the Bible. I really love it. Um, Was it a common practice for the women to go and lay at the men's feet? Um, The short answer is I don't know. I don't think it I think really what Naomi was trying to do is basically saying hey go put the moves on Boaz Right go lay down in his bed and do whatever he tells you to do now Might I suggest parents and grandparents that this is not pious advice that you (laughs) want to give your children or grandchildren? You know, uh, hey, go hop in that guy's bed and then just kind of lay there and say, hey, man, do what you want to do. That's, that's no good. That does not end well. Um, except Ruth, at the last moment, changes it and proposes. What courage. Yeah, I mean it's it's a that's a whole other aspect of the story. Did you guys hear, overhear that? What, hear what she said? Yeah, yeah Perez was in a very Perez. It was born from the same thing of what happened. Basically, what what Naomi wanted Ruth to do. That's another aspect of the story. I hadn't I hadn't made that connection. Good, thanks. Thoughts, thoughts. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's another aspect. It's like an onion. You just kind of keep peeling, peeling it back, and you see all these uh, connections in the story of the Bible. Isn't that cool? Can you say it again a little bit louder, Ken? He's kind of like he he is very much the anti-Boaz in the in the story. It's another real contrast. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Did you guys hear that? Um, We all need to have that kind of counter-cultural faith to be able to challenge uh, some of the (laughs) traditions of our culture, particularly as those traditions get farther and farther away from God's will and God's word. Um, And I think that really one of the keys is what gave her the ability to do that, the courage to really step out there, was she ultimately, I think, believed that God would redeem her. I don't know if she knew that she said, I know this guy's going to say yes. I know he'll accept this proposal. I don't think she knew that at all. I just thought she said, well, uh, here's this open door. I'm walking through it. And if it's the wrong door, there'll be another door. But God's going to deliver me. God will be faithful. Uh, He will receive me into his family. And I think that if we know that, and we have that great confidence that the Lord will redeem us, And the Lord is with us. And if God is on our side, then who can be against us? And so we walk with him in faith, uh, doing bold, uh, crazy, outlandish things, things that people would say, that's too big. That request is too big. That prayer is too big. But we make them in faith, knowing that whatever God does, uh, he will either give us what we ask, or he will give us something even better than what we ask, something that we didn't even imagine or think to ask. He will provide for us. So neat. Good. Yes, Tim. well i I agree with the second part of that but I don't agree with the first because I don't think and you correct me if I'm wrong I can't think of another example in the Bible of a woman proposing to a man i if there might be one I i'd I didn't research that. Um, that's, so I think you're right about the second part of it, that she was saying, hey, please fulfill your obligations, you know, take me under your wing, redeem me, redeem Naomi. She definitely was saying that, but I think that that was not necessarily Naomi's plan in sending her down there. I think Naomi was saying, we're going to get this guy to marry you uh, and if you have to bend the rules a little bit to uh, get them to marry you or sort of entrap, again, sort of following that other plan, then, then that's what you have to do. So, I mean, you know, listen, I could be wrong, but uh, I respectfully disagree with you on the first part, but I, I'm 100% on board with the second part. I think you're right about that. Any other thoughts, questions? All right, well, we'll come back next week and we'll continue to eat this book. And hey, don't forget to read your Bibles. Don't forget to pray. And uh, God will speak to you through his word. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you that you've given us an everlasting name, that you've uh, called us to be part of your family, that you've been so gracious to to us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for uh, his love and mercy toward us for his provision toward us. And we thank you that we can always trust you, knowing that you are good and that you love your people. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks, guys.